Our Father in heaven, the word of your mouth is better to us than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Your hands have made and fashioned us. We ask that you would give us understanding that we may learn your commandments. For we know that those who fear you shall see us and rejoice because we have hoped in your word. So open that word to us now in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Would you turn with me in Matthew's Gospel to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And we're going to look together at the last few verses of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 28 verses 16 through 20. Verses 16 through 20. Probably well-known verses to many of us. Maybe you know what it says before you even turn there. Uh, But we're going to turn there together and read uh, those verses and meditate on uh, the Trinity this evening. So Matthew chapter 28, we're going to begin our reading at verse 16 and read through the end of the chapter. So let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Um, as I said, these words are probably very familiar to most of us. We've, we, like I said, you probably knew what they said before I asked you to turn there and read them to you. Um, well-known words, but um, sometimes I find that the well-known things in the Bible are the ones that we don't often pause or ponder over. Um, we can have a tendency to say, well, I know that. Um, this is the part that's familiar Uh, Why don't we get back into the weeds of Micah or something that I actually need somebody with a seminary degree to help me work through. Um, This is simple, straightforward stuff. Uh, Do I really need help? But I sometimes find it's interesting to go back to those passages we think we know really well um, and see if we have have really taken the time to meditate on them and thought much about them um, in the context of what Scripture teaches us and in the broader context of what they were doing. Imagine you're one of these disciples and you're you're being called to go into the world and to fill, fulfill this great commission that the Lord is giving you. And he tells you to go out and to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Um, he's assuming that you know something about who God is. Um, one of the things that we learn relatively quickly is that the Trinity, that, that concept we have, is nowhere mentioned explicitly in the Bible. We draw it from the Bible and from what the Bible teaches. But Jesus, as a product of his teaching, these disciples can leave them on earth to fulfill the commission that he's given to them with some understanding of whose name they're going out to baptize in. Uh, That the God they're going out to represent is not just Jesus. Um, They're baptizing into the name of Jesus, but also into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Um, that he's given them something of the knowledge of him to go and take into the world, that they understand something that has come to a clarity in the incarnation of Jesus that had not been as clear throughout the rest of the Scriptures. Uh, That this this has come to sort of the height of the revelation of our God, that he is one God who exists in three eternal persons. Um, this, This mysterious but glorious doctrine that the Lord 
gives to us. Um, and, and it's worth sort of pondering and meditating on the fact that, that Jesus has revealed this truth about who God is in a way that despite its mystery, his disciples can now take into the world um, and tell the world something about the one true God who is um, and what he's like, uh, how he is in his being and what he does in his works. Um, it's a glorious truth that we celebrate in the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and I thought we would take time to go through the Athanasian Creed, not obviously because the Creed is Scripture, it's not Scripture, um, but it summarizes Scripture for us in a helpful way, um, helps us to understand this doctrine uh, that has been um, opposed at all times. Jesus teaches it as a certainty in this passage, teaches it with enough certainty for his disciples to go and to minister in the name of the triune God. Um, but this is a doctrine that has been misunderstood and opposed throughout history. Um, it's one of the most precious doctrines we have, one of the most important to get right, and so it's been the most attacked by the devil. Uh, one Reformed theologian put it this way, the doctrine of the Trinity has at all times encountered serious opposition. It not only came from those outside the church, from the side of Judaism and Muslims, against those attack, whose attacks Christians would defend the doctrine, but from within the boundaries of Christendom, this dogma was disputed by many. Now in the confession of the Trinity, we hear the heartbeat of the Christian religion. Every error results from or upon deeper reflection is traceable to a departure in the doctrine of the Trinity. I thought that last statement is very interesting. To say that every error that comes up is traceable back to some mistake about who God is, how God exists, what God does, as it's revealed to us in the Holy Trinity. And so it's important for us to know this doctrine. It's important for us to understand this doctrine. I want to spend a few times, Lord willing, in the weeks to come, just a short series to think about this doctrine as we have it summarized for us in the Athanasian Creed. Um, this scholar called it a dogma of the church. Maybe you've heard that, that word before. Um, maybe it's one of those words that you've heard but don't know what it means. That's okay. That happens. Um, but a dogma simply means a principle laid down by an authority as incontrovertibly true. Um, that that this, this doctrine has been laid down by an authority as something that's incontrovertibly true. And, and where is the authority that has laid this down? On what authority do we believe this doctrine? Well, we believe it on the authority of God's Word. It's been recognized by the church. It's been recognized by creeds and councils, but we recognize it from God's Word that states it as an authority for us. Uh, when we confess in Belgic Confession Article 9, the scriptural witness to the Trinity, uh, we begin by saying all these things we know from the testimonies of the Holy Scripture. It's the scripture that lets us know who God is and how God exists, where he reveals himself to us. Um, we begin by saying scripture testifies. Um, and we end by recognizing that this doctrine has been helpfully summarized and maintained by the true church against the variety of assaults. Um, and so we begin by the statement of scripture in Article 9 of the Belgic Confession, and it ends this way. This doctrine of the Holy Trinity has always been maintained in the true church, from the time of the apostles until the present, against Jews, Muslims, and certain false Christians and heretics 
such as Marcion, Mani, Praxeus, Sibelius, Paul of Samosata, Arius, and others like them who were rightly condemned by the Holy Fathers. And so in this matter, we willingly accept the three ecumenical creeds, the apostles in Nicene and Athanasian, as well as what the ancient fathers decided in agreement with them. Now, there's a lot of names there. And maybe, you know, when I said Praxeus, you weren't like, oh, yeah, Praxeus, what a terrible guy. Um, and hope that nobody was going to ask you who that was, that there's no test at the end of this. Um, some of those names we know. Some of those names maybe we've heard. Some of those names maybe we know nothing about who those people are. But it serves as a, as a testimony in history, doesn't it, that these doctrines have been opposed over and over again by different people, that the church has put together creeds and confessions in order to counter heretical views of these things. Um, there's a long list of those who've corrupted or denied what Holy Scripture teaches regarding the Holy Trinity. And so we need to understand who is, who is God who exists in three persons? Who is this God who sends his disciples out into the world and says, baptize people into my name, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? It's worth t taking the time to think about our God who exists in one essence in three persons and to meditate on the truth of what God's Word teaches us uh, and the importance of that truth, uh, to recognize what God teaches us and what God reveals to us about himself. So what I'd like to do this evening with, with the time that we have is to think about the witness of the Scriptures to the doctrine of the Trinity. Right? It's one thing to say that the Scriptures testify to it. It's another thing to go through and see how the Scriptures testify to the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. And I want to do that, uh, take the time to do that together this evening. Um, to look at the scripture, witness of Scripture to the reality of the Trinity, and then to recognize that this glorious reality is still for us a mystery. Um, I, don't, I don't expect in the time that we have tonight to answer all your questions about the Trinity or bring you to a full understanding of how God exists in Himself. Um, right? the, one of the things that we'll take away is that you can confess the Trinity, but you can't wrap your mind around it. Um, boys and girls, if you have trouble thinking about how three can be one and how one can be three, um, you're in good company. Everybody has trouble with that. Um, it's, a, it's a mystery. It's a profound mystery, but it's a truth that is revealed to us in Scripture. So let's think about the witness of Scripture to the doctrine of the Trinity. The, the Athanasian Creed says this is the Catholic faith, um, by which we don't mean Roman Catholic. We mean the Catholic faith in terms of the one church that has always existed. Uh, the one church, the Catholic church, as we confess in the Apostles' Creed, as we talk about it in the Catechism, um, that it, it means the church that God has, has raised up from all people, from all times and all places. Uh, the universal church. Uh, that's the church that we're talking about. Every, everyone who's truly been a member of the church has truly confessed uh, what God has revealed about himself. Um, and that's what we mean when we talk about that. Uh, that's important for us to do in that day and age. I think we... We have not been willing to give that word up, even though it has different associations, um, but sometimes we have to do that because people hear the word Catholic and they want to they leave. <laughs> they want to try to say, no, 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 not Roman Catholic. We're, we mean that in a different way. It's the universal church. It's something we're saying in the creed that this is, this is what the church has always confessed. This is the God who has always been and has always uh, maintained his identity to his church. God has always existed, one in essence and three in persons. Um, but he, he progressively reveals himself in Scripture as Scripture goes along. 
that, that picture of who God is becomes clearer and clearer. Um, and doesn't become fully clear um, until Jesus comes into the world to bring full clarity to how God exists in himself. And there too shouldn't be very surprising to us. John said that in, in, in John 1 that here is now the first person who comes from heaven to testify to the Father. Um, it's not surprising that the fullest revelation of who God is in himself comes from God himself in the flesh come into the world. The one person who's been to heaven and can come and say, this is what heaven is like. And this is what the God of heaven is like. And that, that's Jesus' main commission, is to come into the world and to tell people about his Father. His Father who loves them and who has sent him to redeem them um, from the wickedness of the world. The, the Lord Jesus reviews. And so this doctrine develops throughout the scriptures, but it's not completely absent from even the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament teaching was always that God was one. Um, that's the, that's the full-throated teaching of the Old Testament. That was the great cry of the people of God. That was the thing that distinguished them from all the peoples around them who had tons of gods. And what were God's people to take as their confession? Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was the great confession that God's people made. Their God was one God. Not many gods warring with each other in charge of little individual you know, kingdoms in this world, but one God who is Lord over all. And that was what God's people were taught. There's one God who alone has the glory. Isaiah 42.8, God said, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Zechariah 14.9, we read, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one, and his name one. God wants his people to understand there is only one true God. But as God continues to reveal himself in interaction and covenant with his people in the, in the Old Testament, he continues to reveal himself in such a way that makes us ask the question, are there more than one person, persons in the Godhead? Because there are passages that seem like there are more than one interacting. Um, and I think so we see the seed of this doctrine even going on in the Old Testament. Um, there are many passages in the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord appears. Um, you, you often hear that, right? You're reading through the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord appears. And, and most people are agreed. Almost always when the angel of the Lord appears, who is that? Well, it's, it's a pre-incarnate vision of the second person of the Trinity. It's the Son of God before his incarnation appearing in the world. That, that Jesus, before his incarnation, appears as the angel of the Lord. And that's why the angel of the Lord speaks for the Lord, but is also identified with the Lord. Um, think about when the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar in, in Genesis 16. Remember that Hagar's been driven out by Sarah, and she's in the wilderness, and we're told that the angel of the Lord comes to her and says to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Um, he, he's, the angel of the Lord speaks for the Lord. right? And it sounds like he's representing 
the word of the Lord to her as a messenger of the Lord. Right? But, but notice how Hagar regards the words of the angel of the Lord. She responds in Genesis 16, 13, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Now that tells us something about who Jesus is even before his incarnation. That this Redeemer, the Son of God, this Redeemer is a God who looks after his people. It's wonderful, but when he speaks as the angel of the Lord for the Lord, she takes that as the voice of the Lord. She says, the Lord has spoken to me. So we already see this, this kind of beginning of this angel who speaks for the Lord and as the Lord. Um, this, this suggestion that he comes as a messenger, but that he too is God. Um, and, and this is not just unique to Hagar, right? This happens when the angel of the Lord speaks to Abraham in Genesis 18. This happens when the angel of the Lord speaks to Lot in Genesis 19 at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. This happens when Moses sees the angel of the Lord at the burning bush. We read in Exodus 3, 2 through 4, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Um, here, here too is the angel of the Lord revealing the name of God to Moses from the burning bush. Uh, but you see there too, it's the angel of the Lord who is both the angel of the Lord who speaks for the Lord, but is also considered God by those who hear him. Um, and so we, we see the beginning of this understanding of the, that there's more than one person in this one God interacting with each other. Again, it's in sort of a seed form. We're not seeing it clearly yet as it's expounded in the New Testament, but it's there. And not only is the second person of the Trinity seen in these kinds of interactions, but the third person of the Trinity is also seen as a distinct person in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit is known um, in the Old Testament as a distinct person of the Godhead. Maybe not explained that clearly, but, but set off as both God and interacting with God. Uh, it becomes the most clear, I think, in the prophet Isaiah. Uh, he brings this to the fore in some of his prophecies. Um, Isaiah 48, verse 17 we read, draw near to me, hear this, from the beginning I have not spoken in secret, and from the time it came to be I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Now there's three people. right? There, there's this speaker saying the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Right? So there we have... Isaiah speaking in a Trinitarian, we might say, way, or maybe a proto-Trinitarian way if you want to be really picky. I don't know how picky you're feeling tonight, but if you want to be really picky, you can call it proto-Trinitarian. But we see kind of a three, right? There's a servant and the Lord who sent him and his spirit. That's, that's where Isaiah begins to develop this, this, this picture of who our God is in a clear way. Um, Isaiah 63, verses 9 and 10 we read, in their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. 
Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. I'm here again as the angel of their presence who was with them. Um, this sad commentary on their people. There he was with them and they, they turned on him. And they grieved his Holy Spirit. Um, it, it speaks in a personal way. Right? We know what it is to be grieved by something. Uh, that, that's a personal characteristic. The Holy Spirit is pictured here as being grieved. Along with the angel of the Lord's presence who was with his people. Um, and we have a clear picture also in Isaiah 61, verse 1, um, of, of this, this threefold um, revelation in the Godhead, uh, where we read, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now we know who this is. Boys and girls, we, I could ask you, and I know you'd know, because the answer is always Jesus, right? Um, when you don't know, it's always safe, and that's the right answer in this place. Who's, who is this person who the Spirit of the Lord is upon? It's Jesus. And the Spirit is upon Jesus, because the Lord has anointed him to do this. And so you see how the whole of the Old Testament is preparing us for the revelation of a messenger of God who will reveal to us who God is in himself and what God wants for the world. And that's what's so important for us to understand about the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes into the world is he's saying, I speak for God. And the one God who exists in three persons, all three persons have an interest in your salvation. That when Jesus comes in as a servant to his people, he comes from his Father to do this. That tells us something about the Father. That he would send his Son to be a Redeemer. It tells us something about the Spirit who is upon this Son to empower him to do the work. Uh, that, that, that God exists in three persons, but all of those persons are one in purpose. To work the salvation of God's people. And so even in the Old Testament you can see that this, this picture is, is coming together of what this servant will be. And what he'll reveal about God to his people. Um, but of course what is in a shadowy form in the Old Testament comes to clarity in the new at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Sometimes people say that what in the Old, Old Testament is concealed is in the New Testament revealed. Maybe you've heard that. Um, I'm not sure that that's you know, necessarily the greatest statement. But certainly the things in the New Testament are more clearly revealed. And when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, that becomes very clear. It becomes very clear in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. It becomes very clear in the message that God gives to Mary uh, by his angel. When Mary's told in Luke 1.35... The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. There you have the three persons distinctly. Right? The Holy Spirit overshadowing you, the power of the Most High coming upon you and producing the Son. Um, there, there we have it in more clarity. We have it in clarity at the baptism of Jesus. 
uh, the baptism of Jesus that we read about in Luke 3. Um, Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Right, so there is Jesus, the son of God, in the world, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove from heaven, and a voice from heaven speaks as a father. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Um, There we have the Trinity at work. Um, It's always easy to remember if you remember that the Trinity is spoken about in Luke 3 and in Matthew 3 is also Jesus' baptism. The three there. Um, You have the Trinity all together at Jesus' baptism. Uh, We see that in the farewell discourses of Jesus in John. So both as he comes into the world, we see the revelation of the Trinity. As he's going out of the world, He reveals the triune God, talking about how the Father will send the Spirit, or how Jesus will send the Spirit from the Father. Um, They're again revealing who the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are, such that by the time the Lord commissions His church, as we read in Matthew 28, there's clarity about how God exists in Himself, that He exists as a Father who sent the Son into the world and the Spirit who is in the world as another helper from the Father and the Son. That that is who God is, and that's who He's revealed Himself to be. Uh, The disciples now understand that and can take that into the world, that this is our God. Um, They can understand that, and they can bless God's people in that triune name. Uh, The apostles do that as well. 1 Peter 1, verse 2 Uh, He blesses them according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter understands that's the God he serves, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, That's how Paul blesses the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is our God. Um, And you see how this is not just theological knowledge. This is important for knowing what kind of God we serve and what his purpose in revealing himself is. To know who he is and what he does for his people. So we can be comforted to understand our God in fullness as a father um, who created and sustains everything, who sent his son to redeem those who belong to him, And the Father and the Son who send the Spirit to sanctify those who belong to Him. There's a purpose in this revelation beyond just knowing the facts. God never reveals things to us just to, you know, give us sort of bald theological knowledge that's of no practical use. It's of great practical use to know what kind of God we have. Uh, That God is a loving Father. That God is a gracious, redeeming Son. That God is a sanctifying Spirit. Um, Those are all important for the people of God to know. It's glorious. If nothing else, it helps us to glorify God more for who He is. 
Even if that was all you could take away from this, I hope it's not all you take away from it, and I hope as we go on, we'll see the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity. But even if that was all we could take away from this truth, to be able to glorify our God as the God who exists, one in essence and three in persons like this, would be enough. To be able to take some time and to meditate on this truth. Sometimes I think we do that not just with familiar Bible passages, but also with fundamental truths. They're so fundamental and we know them that we don't take the time to meditate on them. That there's glory to know uh, that, God, that we serve one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, as, as, the, as the Athanasian Creed puts it. That's one of the most sublime statements about the Trinity that you can come up with. That we serve one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. He is one God, existing in three persons. Now, that's a mystery. Um, we, we've sometimes tried to use analogies to explain it, um, and usually, you know, some theologian will point out that um, every analogy we use is some kind of ancient heresy. <laughs> um, you know, because it's hard, you can't, do a, you can't do an analogy to something that exists only in one way. Um, there's nothing you can look at in the world and say, well, that's kind of like the Trinity. Um, no, there, there is a mystery to it, but the mystery is glorious. Um, there, there is a glory in, in how God reveals himself in this way. Um, and I really like some of the people who've meditated on that minute. I'll try that again. Who've meditated on that mystery. Um, you know, I think we, we confess it, we know it, but do we meditate on that? Do we meditate on the glory of that? Um, this, this truth that's beyond our comprehension, but a true description of the God we serve? I'm thankful for the people who have taken some time to meditate on that truth. Um, Belgian Confession Article 9 talks about the church fathers, who many of whom were engaged in a fight against heretics, against people who were trying to compromise the truth of the Trinity, who were trying to say that Jesus was not God, or that the Holy Spirit was not a person, um, trying to compromise the deity of God, the deity of the Son, the personhood of the Holy Spirit, were, were attacking, and there were people who, who stood up for this doctrine, who died for this doctrine, because it was important enough for them to defend God and who He was in His revelation. And understood the importance of the glory of the God who's revealed himself. And there were church fathers who were willing to do that, to stand up and fight for the truth of God's word about the God who'd revealed himself and who meditated on the glory. Um, one example is Augustine who said, as he meditated on the greatness of God, God is greater and truer in our thoughts than in our words. He is greater and truer in reality than in our thoughts. We said, you know, we try to articulate what God is like. We say God is one in Trinity and Trinity in unity. And we understand something of what we mean when we say that, but we understand that what our thoughts are on that are greater than how we can articulate it. You ever have that problem where you have something on your mind and you try to say what's on your mind, but it, you know you're not really doing it justice? That's what Augustine says when it comes to our thoughts of God. God, God is truer and greater 
in our thoughts than he is in the way that we can articulate it. But if we think about God, we know that he's still greater than how we think about him. That even our, our, our creaturely feeble ability to comprehend, even enlivened by the Holy Spirit, is insufficient to wrap our minds about the trueness and the greatness of our God. He's even greater than we can contemplate or imagine. Um, and, and it's a wonderful thing to, to meditate on that. Um, another church father said that God is one Godhead in power found in three in unity and comprising the three separately. In every respect equal, in every respect the same, just as the beauty and the greatness of the heavens is one, the infinite conjunction of the three infinite ones each God when considered in himself, as the Father, so the Son, as the Son, so the Holy Ghost, as the three, one God when contemplated together. Um, this church father meditated on the glory of God. And what's interesting is a thousand years later, Calvin records his meditation and says, I, I came across this and what this guy was saying, and I found it vastly delighting to think about this meditation on God. Um, a thousand years later, Calvin was a thousand years after this guy. And he said, you listen to what he says about the Holy Trinity and it can't but delight you. Because he says this, no sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. If I think of the one blessed person, my eyes are filled and the other two are not in my mind. And so the greater part of God escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one person so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. And then when I try to contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. He said, you know, I try, I try to meditate on who God is. I'll try to explain this and show you why it should be vastly delighting to all of us and not just Calvin. Um, what, what is he saying about the glory of God? He's saying, you know, when I try to contemplate it, when I try to wrap my mind around it, I say, let me just think about the Father for a minute. Let, let me just fill my mind with who God is as our Father. And, and, and what is the light that becomes blinding in the Father? That here is the God who created everything out of nothing. Who called the world into being, and it was. Who gave everything its shape, and its being, and its form, and its purpose. Who, who didn't only just make it all and made it very good, but then continues to uphold it all by the power of his glorious hand. And when he made it, he had a purpose for it all the way at the end. He declared the end from the beginning and put it into the world to put it into motion, to do what he wanted it to do, to be a theater for his glory. He says, that's the God who is our Father, the great creator and sustainer who does everything by the power of his will. And he says, you know, I fill my mind with who God is as Father. And I say to myself, I'm beginning to grasp some of the greatness. And then I realize to myself that there's a Son and a Spirit over here that I'm not even thinking about. And so then what do I do? Well, I try to shift. And then I try to say, well, let me try to wrap my mind around the Son. And then he says, but then God, the Son becomes so great that, that you're amazed by the glory that's there. That there should be a Son through whom everything was made. 
And that not one thing was made without him of all the things that have been made. That he was there with the Father at the beginning. And that he covenanted with the Father from all eternity to come and save the people that his Father had chosen. That he was willing to come into this world and become like us. To take to his blessed divinity our human nature. To become like us and to be humbled to a bitter and shameful death on the cross that we might be saved. That glory came to serve. That glory willingly set aside his place with the Father. Didn't count equality with him a thing to be grasped. Was willing to empty himself of it and become like us to save us. And now he's been raised Gloriously from the dead, he's ascended in heaven. He reigns at the right hand of his Father. He's coming in in glory to judge the living and the dead. And he's going to make all things new. And this guy said, you know, you start to just try to see Jesus and you see the glory and it becomes so blinding. And then you realize, but wait a minute, now I'm not looking at the Father or the Spirit. And then I try to look at the Spirit and the same thing happens. Here's the Spirit who is hovering over the waters at creation. Here's the divine person who went out to perfect everything that God does. Here's the divine person who's always been sanctifying the work of the Father and the Son. Who was the one by whom all of what we know about God has come into the world. So that the revelation of God in his word has come to us from the Holy Spirit. That when Jesus came into the world, it was by the power of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was dying for his people on the cross, he was sustained by the power of the Holy Spirit. That it was the power of the Holy Spirit who raised him from the dead. That it was the power of the Holy Spirit that he's poured out on the church. And this church father said, you know, so then I look at the Spirit and I can't, and I realize I'm leaving out the Father and the Son. And if I try to wrap my arms around all three, all I see is one glorious undivided God. Isn't that a glorious picture of who our God is? Do we meditate often enough on the greatness of our God? Do we get delighted by the fact that this is the God we serve? Um, I'm hoping that as we go through that we see the glory of who our God is. And that how he is in himself reveals to us also how he chooses to work so that we can be delighted by him and that we can be comforted by him. And that's what the Athanasian Creed helps us to do. Helps us to rightly understand what we confess about one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity so that we might glorify our God and be comforted to know that a God like that loves people like us. That despite his great majesty and glory, he has set his love on the people he's made. And moved heaven and earth to save us. One God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, blessed forever. Amen. 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 Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we glorify your name. We glorify you as the great God who is one and yet exists eternally in three distinct persons. We pray that you would help us to worship you as. God the Father, our great creator, and God the Son, our great redeemer, and God the Holy Spirit, our great sanctifier. 
We thank you that you have accommodated yourself to us, that despite the fact that we know you are greater and more glorious than we can conceive of, that you have revealed yourself to us. And even though we know that in our creatureliness we can't hope to wrap our minds completely around your glory, that we have been able to see a glimpse of that glory. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the richness of what you reveal to us about yourself in, in yourself. And we pray that we would glorify you. Help us as we study these things never to go beyond what we're able to comprehend. But what we are able to comprehend, may we rejoice in and delight in and glorify your name. Hear us and help us in our study, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.